Welcome to our session on what transformational change means in agriculture and key commodity landscapes. As many of you know, the Forest Positive Coalition of Action is made up of 20 brands and retailers, has made some five key commitments around accelerating efforts to removing commodity driven deforestation, setting higher expectations for suppliers and traders, drive transformational change in landscapes, define measurable outcomes, and agree to track and report individually and collectively. We've just heard about the drivers to accelerate efforts to remove deforestation. I think we're all very much on board if you're at this event as to why we're doing this. Um, and of course, how we set higher expectations for suppliers and traders and how we make sure the supply base moves is a key part of driving that transformational change. So I'm going to ask our speakers to do a quick 30 seconds or less, one minute if they have to, on who they are and what they do, just so you have their context. Uh, and then we'll come back and, and we'll start up hearing from them with some opening comments on what this notion of transfer, transformational change means in practice. We do love our jargonistic terms in sustainability, don't we? Um, and so it's really important that we try and break these down into really practical actions that demonstrate change and, and of course, start looking at the outcomes we all need. So looking forward to discussing that and to hearing your comments and questions over the next 60 minutes. So uh, let's do the quick round the room. Magdi, why don't we start with you? Tell us, tell us who you are and what you do and welcome. Thank you, Toby. Good morning, good afternoon, all of you. I'm Magdi Batato. I'm heading operations for the Nestle Group. What it means in Nestle is its procurement, supply chain, manufacturing, and also ESG uh, under my responsibility. I'm 30 years in Nestle. Nestle was my third job. And uh, I started as a specialist in energy and environment. So it's a big loop coming back to that in this job I have today. And I have done various jobs in various geographies for Nestle. The last one being CEO for Nestle in Pakistan. And then here in this job, uh, based in our headquarters since 2015. Happy to be on the panel and happy to interact with all of you. Thanks, Magdi. Barry. Yeah, hi, everybody. Great to be joining you. Uh, Barry Parkin. I'm the uh, Chief Procurement Officer and Chief Sustainability Officer at Mars. I, uh, I'm going to win in terms of uh, tenure at the company. I've been uh, 36 years with Mars. Uh, usual corporate career across lots of functions and business units and uh, but I, I think you know procurement found me found uh, through procurement I found my way to sustainability as we started to understand what was really going on upstream in our supply chain so uh, delighted to be here. Thanks Barry. Chris. Yes, sorry. Hi, everybody. Great to be with you today. Chris McGrath. I uh, am the uh, Chief Sustainability Officer at Mondelez International. I've been with the company 25 plus. After 25, I stopped reporting the actual number. Um, but I grew up on the craft side of the business, uh, running brands and uh, in marketing, and then spent a long time in innovation. And I've been leading sustainability at Kraft and now Mondelez for over 10 years. And I also have the responsibility of co-chairing the Force Positive Coalition which at CGF, which we can talk a little bit more about. So great to be with you. Thanks, Chris. We certainly will. Olivier. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Olivier Tichit. I'm the, the head of sustainability, director of sustainability for Musimas. Musimas is, uh, is an integrated palm oil company. We go from uh, upstream plantations all the way to downstream functional products. Um, I will lose definitely at the game of today, apparently. I've been with the company two and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was in a plantation company in Indonesia still, so I'm based in Indonesia. And I'm very, very happy to be on this, uh, on this panel today. 
Thanks very much, Olivier. Well, we're going to start with some round the room um, definitions of what all this means at the moment. It's a, it's a fast moving beast, as we know. But Magdi, why don't you give us your opening comments on what transformational change means right now uh, for you guys at Nestle? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, everybody knows we are the biggest food company. So for us, what's important is to uh, transform the food systems, because actually we need to be feeding nearly 9 billion people on planet Earth by 2050. And without reinventing ourselves, we will not be able to do that in a sustainable way. And for us, the key theme today in Nestle is uh, regeneration. And how can we regenerate? How can we uh, rejuvenate? And actually, uh, closer to, to my job, of course, and closer to what we use as an agro-based company is, of course, regenerative agriculture. And I think uh, that's at the heart for us of uh, the transformation. And at the heart of regenerative agriculture, if you think of it, we talk about soil and soil health. And the topic today about uh, forest and forest positive is also, of course, at the heart of, of that. So very much looking forward to be part of that. Uh, I might not be here in 2050, but I think we are laying down the foundations of what we feel is extremely important for the future of food and for the future, not only of our business, but also for the future of the planet. Uh, good for you, good for the planet. Uh, this is what uh, we believe in, in our company. Thanks, Magdi. Um, at the heart of this is traceability, which is... You know, where was our key would have been our key headline for this session a few years ago we're trying to move that on now to make it more encompassing but um, what level of traceability are we talking about today that enables you to understand where regen is actually happening look uh, on traceability i think it's uh, very important to, to go as far as we can uh, firstly because we want to understand what's happening in the upstream part of the value chain but also the consumer is asking for that more and more today, our consumers want to know where the product comes from. And so for me, uh, going a bit closer into some details now, you know, when we talk about uh, farms, uh, ultimately, that's where we need to go back. Of course, we cannot have traceability at farm level everywhere, at individual farm level, but it's a journey. So we started, for example, for some of the commodities, let's say palm paper or palm oil, we talk about traceability at the mill level and then traceability at the landscape level, which is a combination of farmers. But then, as I said, uh, we, we have in some cases traceability at the farm level. This is how we, uh, we really can make impact. And this is, of course, also uh, you know, what, uh, what the consumer is interested in. And this is where also we can, you know, if we talk about regeneration, where we can impact individual uh, farmers or group of farmers. But we can't do this alone. I think when you say traceability, Automatically, it's about teaming with others. It's about finding appropriate coalitions. And some of it is also pre-competitive. So it's also not being one company to do that, but actually a set of companies uh, to do that, to accelerate this journey. Thank you. Yeah, that's where obviously the landscape approach comes in and regenerative landscapes is where we want to get to. Barry, uh, welcome back. Um, a year ago, we were sat here discussing a decommoditization uh, with uh, Magdi's colleague, Rob Cameron. Um, how does that term fit in with transformation and traceability and all these other terms? And I just wondered your views on, you know, what does this all mean in practice and perhaps where we've got to since we last spoke, Barry? 
Yeah, no, great. And um, yeah, just a bit of scoping to start with it. So we're not the biggest food company in the world, but we're one of the biggest. Uh, and uh, we, we buy uh, you know raw materials all over the world, I think from more than 100 countries. We've around about a million farmers or farm workers in our in our value chain. Um, and, you know, when, it, when you add it all up, uh, we, we have a carbon footprint the size of a small country. So this 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 all matters. And, uh, um, you know, and and the vast majority of our entire carbon footprint is connected with agriculture and uh, these commodity supply chains. So, you know, this is at the heart of the sustainability challenge for, for us. And I think for everyone else on this uh, on this uh, panel, um, you know, for us, transformation, um, you know, means rethinking or redesigning the supply chain i think we've all moved past the point of thinking that you know you could put a band-aid or a sticking plaster on the existing supply chain um you know the supply chains that we've had over the last decades of were designed for uh, a particular purpose so the, you know the most efficient movement of of materials from field to 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 farm and uh, through to uh, consumer um, but they didn't take into account sustainability and therefore they're, they're not fit for purpose. So, you know, we think this is a procurement challenge fundamentally. It's not a sustainability team challenge or a public affairs challenge. This is, this is pure and simple a procurement challenge about redesigning supply chains. And, and you do that by either changing what you buy or where you buy it or how you buy it. And, uh, and so we're systematically... Uh, going through our supply chains and redesigning them, and uh, you know the, the the word that we use uh, that you you you've referenced, Toby, is yeah we're decommoditizing our supply chains, and you know to bring that to life, you know when I first bought cocoa more than twenty years ago, we uh, we bought to a quality specification on price, and frankly we didn't know what country it came from, uh, never mind what what farmer it came from. Now that's completely unacceptable now. You know, we need to know exactly where it comes from and under what conditions it's being produced all the way through the value chain. So, you know, this, you know, the idea of uh, buying commodities is, is in the rearview mirror. Uh, we're buying materials from farmers we know and under conditions, and often we're doing work and projects on the ground with those farmers. So, you know, it's, it's about known and traced um, and, and often that's about simplifying the supply chain in order to be able to do that and entering into long-term relationships with the partners along the value chain all the way through to the farmer and, and trying to create win-wins rather than sort of win-lose, which I think was, you know, one of the characteristics of old commodity supply chain. So, so we're very much, um, we're trying to end the commodity era. It sounds like the job of a typical procurement exec at Mars is changed dramatically in the last few years. But having been on the end of some procurement processes from large companies, I've seen some pretty Byzantine paperwork requests and, and IT systems. Barry, can you describe for us the change that's happened in the last few years for your procurement folks and how they work? Because it's a very different mindset from the, the, what you described a few years ago, I imagine, in terms of what you're expecting of them now. Yeah, we're expecting them to understand the value chain all the way back to the farmer, all the steps along it, and to and you know, uh, and we set them targets, uh, the usual ones: service, quality, price, but also carbon, poverty, water stress. You know, each one of our global category directors who buys raw materials knows exactly what the issues are they're trying to solve, and and uh, and they're measured on them. Um, and uh, you know, when I review categories 
strategies with them. We're, we're reviewing all of those things. So we, we made the problem much more complex for them. And, and frankly, if you just add constraints into a supply chain, typically the price goes up. So, that, so the challenge to them is how do you do this and continue to drive efficiencies? And, uh, and that means they have to redesign it. But it, it's, it's, um, it's coming from the top of the organization. What, what we've done, just to take greenhouse gas as an example, is we've, um, our top 300 execs in the, in the business, their long-term incentives are now equally weighted on carbon as they are on financial performance. And, and that is game-changing. Um, you know, if you, if you make it 5% of their bonus, you know, your typical general manager won't do anything different. He doesn't know how to drive carbon. Um, he knows how to drive earnings, cash. If you make it 50% of his bonus or 25% of his bonus, um, then they'll take note. And they're asking the questions, okay, what do we do? Um, and one of the first things you do is you stop deforestation. Uh, that's how you reduce the carbon in, in your supply chain. So uh, we're, we're driving this from the top of the organization now. Do you ever have any concerns that a narrow carbon target might produce some unintended consequences for those at the end of the supply chain? Well, we, we sort of counter that by having, uh, you know, the procurement uh, teams have the whole balance of, of, you know, both social and economic uh, and environmental targets. So they have to deliver all of them. So I'm, I'm not I'm not super worried about that, but it is something to watch out for. But, you know, the, the, the key in big corporates is focus, focus, focus. If you make it too complicated, you don't get anywhere. Yeah, and I guess all of your folks were aware that, you know, if you're going to cut carbon, it's really about people in many in many ways, right? So you have to be holistic. Great. Well, um, lots more to talk about. Chris, let's turn to you. Um, you've been a key actor in the Forest Positive Coalition, the Consumer Goods Forum. We've referenced already pre-competitive collaboration, and we've already got a really good question here about difference between supply chains and food systems. What, what are your views on how this is all taking shape and has taken shape in the last couple of years? And I guess how now we, we need to accelerate post-COP, Chris. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much, Toby. So I think for us at the Forest Positive uh, Coalition, we have our theory of change is based on, you know, two key parts. One is about, you know, really uh, supply chain management and really changing the dynamic there. But the other piece, which we just announced at COP, a few weeks ago is about our uh, integrated uh, land use and this landscape strategy. And I think it's very different from what we've done in the past in a few in a few ways. A, it's, it's you know, typically we think, um, as, as you've heard from Magdi and Barry, you know, we go out, we buy a commodity to a certain specification, we, we the industry and the companies. And maybe not thinking about, you know, sort of the upstream, what's going on at the landscape level. And when we do think about the landscape level, we might go in and think about palm oil or cocoa or whatever the, you know, soy, whatever it is. But really thinking about it from a ground up perspective about what's the impact of what's going on in that where the commodities grown. And when we think about the impact on, on nature, climate and people um, and if and, you know, how do you have sort of a multi crop? Uh, view in terms of the way that's best for those three elements, um, it, all working together. And, and what's also very different when you take this approach is that not only can not one company solve these kinds of things, you need multiple companies, but you need to be multi-stakeholder. So you need the local governments, you need the involvement of obviously our supplier partners who are, are on the front lines. You need the involvement of the farmers and, and the growers. 
Um, you need, and we've done a lot of work, we can talk about this, of getting uh, stakeholder input. First of all, to develop our theory of change, we spent over 18 months, almost two years developing it with a lot of input from stakeholders. And since we've launched the coalition, we have regular um, uh, check-ins and we invite from sort of, you know, the sort of the conscious citizens, as we call them, um, stakeholders, NGOs, and say, like, come in and, and let us show you with what we're doing, what we're thinking, what our KPIs are, what our, our approach is going to be, challenge us. But we, we ask for constructive challenge. I mean, we, we are trying to do things very differently in a very transparent way, measure impact along the way versus putting out a long-term commitment and saying, you know, we'll get back to you in 10 years and let you know how we did. This is very much more an active um, active learning cycle, very open and very transparent. But it involves, I think, taking that sort of bottoms-up approach. It's about forest climate and, and, and people, uh, nature climate people. And that's how we believe we will be able to, working together collectively, start to transform our supply chains, transform what's going on down at the landscape level to, to be able to you know, support that uh, supply chain transformation. Thanks, Chris. How would you characterize the change that's taking place within the coalition members? I mean, top 20 consumer goods companies and retailers often used to fiercely competing. Um, how, how is that changing in real practical terms that you can characterize for us since the coalition's launch? Could you give us a, a few concrete examples? Because it, it can't be easy. We, I think we all appreciate that. Right. Thank you. Yeah, it, it isn't easy. I mean, and, and Barry and I've worked together for years in Coco, and I think we've had similar experiences there. You need to, to start to figure out how to build trust and recognize that you're working in a pre-competitive space, um, that, you know, we're not going to win market share out on, on a field uh, working with farmers and making sure that good practices are happening. Uh, so I think it's recognizing that we have a shared ambition, and I think it's being very uh, open about bringing to the table. And this, this is something that, you know, we've been working together for over two years. So it's not that it just starts overnight, but getting to know each other, building that trust, bringing in the lessons learned, bringing in and sharing very openly the challenges. And I think that helps to build that shared ambition that helps to build the collective, you know, experience. Um, and then you start to get to know people. Um, and I would say the, I think a, a one thing that's very, very different about the coalition is you know, it used to be whoever the representative was at the CGF, you know, on that on that group, right? So it might be the CGF person, um, excuse me, uh, corporate affairs, it might be the sustainability person. This is about really taking these, um, these practices and embedding them back in the businesses within each of the companies and involving the functional leads uh, in the companies that really matter. So we've had several sessions with the chief procurement officers, and when we, you know, this is a CEO led organization. So we have, you know, Grant Reed, the CEO of Mars, you know, is one of our, our CEO co-chairs of Forest Positive. So I, I work very closely with, with Grant, even though I work for Mongolese. And again, because we're not, you know, this is about a shared agenda. Um, and I think what we've talked about with the CEOs is that this is about doing business differently. This isn't about, you know, making a commitment and, you know, again, reporting against some KPIs, the KPIs that we just issued our first annual report at, uh, in, uh, in September is about the changing our, our work that's happening within each of the companies and, and then sharing our progress along the way. But it's about changing the practices in each of the companies and doing our business differently uh, and doing that in a very transparent way. That's really critical to, to driving that change. 
Thank you, Chris. You mentioned procurement folks, as, as Barry did and Maggie alluded to as well. Very important. What are the typical kinds of questions that they're asking about what they need to be, you know, what they need to know to make this change happen? Because, you know, similar questions to as I had to Barry, really, you know, their landscape of how they work has changed dramatically in the last five years, I would have thought. Yeah, I think that it's about they're looking for help on what the KPI should be. How can we get the good data? You know, how can we get good data? Um, how to engage? You know, what are what are some of the lessons that we're learning about uh, engaging suppliers? And can we can we join forces on that? Some of them are asking about you know, can we go together and talk to suppliers? Uh, I think another question is is the cost side of this? You know, is this an add-on cost um, or is this you know how can we mainstream these practices? And I and I and I think Barry touched on it, but absolutely. This is about, I think one of the, if we're successful, the, we need to flip the model. So, it, you, and this is what we're talking about with our supplier partners and where we really engage the, the CPOs, the chief procurement officers is about the old world and, and the world that we're still in, frankly, and that we're trying to, to change is, you know, you do good forest practices, you do good, you know, human rights due diligence. And you typically, if you're a company that, at, at, that asks for that, you pay a premium. And then suppliers, you know, and it's all customer driven. So customers like the ones here, these brand companies say, I want that kind of, uh, you know, uh, good due diligence and good practices and I'll pay a premium for it. And then typically the supply chain sort of like, well, if you don't want it, we'll just kind of run it however we want. And we're really trying to shift that model. And I think that's what Barry's talking about, about decommoditizing. I mean, this has to be that these become the mainstream practices. We can't ever achieve any of our climate goals. We can't have good human rights um, you know, protections and practices if we sort of run this bifurcated supply chain. It's just never going to work. So that's the kind of conversation that we have with the CPOs is how do we cost efficiently mainstream these practices? Yeah, an ongoing challenge. And of course, taking the landscape approaches we'll talk about more in a moment is key to doing that in terms of working together and showing everyone how they can make an impact on the ground. Olivier, turning to you, you've been listening patiently to this. You live in Indonesia. You, you spend time, I imagine, um, amongst palm oil smallholders and other producers. What, what are your views uh, on all of this, Olivier? Well, I, I wish I wish I would uh, I would find a way to rephrase everything that's been said because a lot of that is uh, is indeed what's important. And we talk about collaboration and the pre-competitive, the fact that how do you collaborate with your competitors? Uh, that's something we also face. Um, how do we, and we find ways at the end of the day, it might be baby steps, but you have to find ways to collaborate with your competitors closer to the, I was going to say the cold face or rather to the palm face. In our case, um, how do you find ways to collaborate? You can do, we go as far as doing uh, joint, uh, joint um, how do you call that, uh, workshops, let's say with some of our competitors, because some issues are just not issues on which we're going to win or lose uh, suppliers in our case. Um, I would say that for us, it's also about how do we reassess the, the best interest of our business. So it, it goes along the, the same lines. Huh? What are the best interests uh, of our business? Uh, in our case, it touches on to smallholders. Uh, it's about smallholders, how we impact smallholders and how we impact landscapes with smallholders. It's about uh, thinking about, so in our case, we have what we call smallholder hubs. And where we, we support local governments to train smallholders. They're not our smallholders automatically. They're not smallholders in our supply chain. They are smallholders. Why do we do that? Because we need a higher production that does not come from deforestation. And the pool of increased 
production is mostly in the smallholders. So we have to go and reach out to the smallholders. If we go narrowly, in our case anyway, narrowly to the supply base of our own suppliers, our own supply base, well, the smallholders, they're quite free people. They can sell to us today, not sell to us tomorrow. So if we try to keep them by force in our supply chain, that would not work. So we, we realized that if we want to have a really serious impact, not only on the smallholders, but also on the rest of the landscape, we have to go and work with local governments, other stakeholders. We have a good, at our company, we have a good uh, experience on training smallholders. So we, it's something we know we have an added value. So we work with the local government, we give them extra knowledge, let's say, a bit of back, uh, backup on their own training systems. We have a good curriculum. We can ensure some quality control behind it. And the point is to get the landscape to transform, uh, in our case, on very practical terms on best management practices and sustainability for the smallholders, but also that supports the local governments. It shows them that their work is also recognized. We, we get support. We try to link downstream companies uh, Nestle in particular for one of, of the smaller hubs with actually another company which is in between Nestle and us, AK. And that's quite interesting because you have that link upstream to downstream. And the point is not to get financial contribution. The real point is to get the, those landscapes to see, hold on a second, we asked to change practices. We are getting more information, more pressure maybe on no deforestation, on changing practices, improving practices. We see better yields, but we also see an interest from the market. People come from very far afield to tell us, hey, what you're doing is good. And that recognition element is actually very important as well. So uh, I think I'll, I'll keep at that for the moment. But the, the, that recognition point is actually difficult to give a dollar value on. It's not very expensive. It, it might be, I don't know, it might be a 10 minutes of a video from, uh, from Magdi, maybe uh, one day to that, uh, to that area and tell them, Hey guys, you know, great, great uh, progress in that uh, landscape. And it does wonders. So it, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of work to be done to get there. But at the end of the day, it's that bond of trust a bit that, that's created from one end to the other end of the supply chain. And again, it's a bond of trust that does, does not come out of nothing. There's a lot of work to be done. We have common definitions of things. We know the goals. We have a lot of transparency in the supply chain. And at the end of the day, that creates that trust that has the right impact. That's a really good point about local motivations, isn't it? We spend a lot of time talking about incentives and yield improvement and technical challenges and you know capacity building and all of that's incredibly important. But actually helping farmers feel like they're part of something bigger that helps their country is a huge thing that perhaps we don't talk about enough here and haven't done for many years. I heard an example recently of a Dutch supermarket chain that was using blockchain and they were showing um, Brazilian orange pickers, Dutch children drinking their juice at their breakfast table. And um, the farmers were absolutely delighted that their products were helping small children get vitamin C halfway across the world. Yet that's not something we've talked about that much over the years. So it's a really interesting point you make there, that, that local motivation. I mean, is that how you talk to them about landscape approaches, to help them feel like they're part of something bigger that's contributing to their, their not just their community, but their regional development? It's, it's, a, it's a mix of things. I mean, at the end of the day, we, the private sector, we have a role, we have a function as economic actors. We're buying, we're processing, we're selling. That's all very well. We can also invest in the future, but how do we get the local governments to see a value in that and to feel that connection with, with our business, so to speak? 
And how do we then get the, the smaller or the, com the communities to feel at least the ones we can impact? It's a, yes, it's a bit difficult. So how that, that's, that's the point. The point is to say it's not only because the central government tells you to do something or because we want to put pressure on you as a business or because NGOs are coming to tell you things are not going well, or maybe your NGOs as well also are seeing negative impacts of deforestation and wanting to stop. It's also how do we as a business try to find our place there, which is not over overtaking the local governments, let's say, but at the same time still what I used to, I try to explain that to plantation companies to, to tell them you have a place in the landscape and you've got to claim it. You've got duties to that landscape. The landscape has duties to you as well. It has to be a balanced relationship. And it's that difficult equilibrium we're trying to find. Takes time, takes trust. It does function. Do you find that thinking hard about local incentives? The thing is, we're talking about transformation. Let's talk about the transformation of communities and farmers for, for a bit longer, because that's fascinating. And I know that's how you know where you're working in many cases. I was in Sumatra a couple of years ago, just before COVID hit, and I saw how, how April were trying to stop deforestation and allow reforestation by um, not telling farmers not to cut down forests, but by talking to them about what haze did to their children's health. And then saying, well, if we don't have haze, then maybe we don't need to burn. If we don't burn next season, well, maybe we can provide an economic incentive by building a bridge or a piece of infrastructure. Or, you know, So they sort of achieve their goals or are trying to achieve their goals by slightly more oblique ways. Is that something you recognize as a way that works in transforming communities? And, and could you give us any further examples on that? Absolutely. I think communities, farmers are, farmers, are, farmers are quite smart operators in reality. I'm not a big fan of the cuddly smallholder. Smallholders, on average, are not cuddly. They're tough guys. They, they lead a tough life and they're very sensitive to ecosystem services in reality. They might not call them ecosystem services, but they know exactly what it's about. So yes, talking about water quality, water availability, that, that's something that can register. Um, but you need to have enabling also conditions. So let's say the state has to fulfill its function as well. You must have a value to having land rights, let's say. If I have a land title or if I cannot access land title, then the logics are different as well. So you, you, have, that, you have to have that balance, as I said earlier, basically, between having farmers who we try to equip to be better farmers, but who are naturally sensitive to what's an ecosystem service in reality, but also there needs to be enabling conditions so that they see the value also of changing their practices. So land titles is a good one, actually. I think when you have a good land rights uh, environment, farmers can, can, have, can see a better incentive in long-term change of practices. Thank you. Yeah, there's an increasing body of examples of, of this in action, which is great to see. We're finally getting to, to understand a bit more about what communities want and what they respond to. Magdi, back to you on, on the landscapes approach. That's the title of our conference. It's all the rage at the moment, along with regeneration. But when you're working in, in landscapes as a company that's perhaps a little bit more removed from the immediate pharmacists than perhaps Muslim masses, how do you focus on sharing costs and how do you attribute claims for your own success? I mean, that, that, that is a genuine challenge. What are, what are the, what's the thinking at the moment? Mike? Firstly, uh, Toby, allow me to correct what you said. We work directly with a million farmers. So we have thousands of agronomists and boots on the ground. Uh, so we impact, of course, nearly 5 million farmers, but directly we have direct relationships with a million farmers. So we are very much close to the farmers and their practices. And this is not because of climate change only. This is because for years we have been working also on quality 
and and food quality and the quality of the produce of farmers, incentivizing them on the quality of their produce, on yield, on productivity, on a lot of other things. So for us, it was kind of natural to, to add an important dimension, which is the regeneration or the regenerative practices. But the, the system and the, the procedure works. Look, for cost and how we share cost. Firstly, uh, there is something to acknowledge. This is not going to come for free in the beginning. And there is the so-called just transition. And it's our role to help farmers through that just transition. And that's why when we announced what we announced on the climate roadmap, we also announced some money we are putting uh, through premiums and otherwise to be able to enhance the regenerative agriculture practices. It's very important to acknowledge there will be costs. Now, when you work on a landscape with others, of course, you need engagement upfront from uh, those stakeholders, and you need also some rules of the game that are agreed upfront. The best way to maybe uh, showcase this is to share with you a concrete initiative that started in Indonesia, which is called the RIMBA Collective. What RIMBA is about is an initiative with, uh, not, we are not alone, it's with uh, PepsiCo, with uh, Procter & Gamble, with even some of the palm oil suppliers, buyers, producers, uh, Lestari Capital, which is a bank, so you need also a bank in this type of coalition, and the UK aid government, so it's a governmental aid organization. And the objective of that RIMBA collective is to restore 500,000 hectares of forest, supporting 32,000 individuals in those forest communities in Southeast Asia over 25 years. So it's for the long haul. This is not only for a couple of years. And as I said, it started in Indonesia and is, is expanding now. Why we believe this is innovative or that type of approach is innovative because it's a blended type of uh, finance partnerships. And also it's leverages public investment, UK aid in this case. And it delivers shared benefits. It's carbon, livelihood also for farmers. And these shared benefits are agreed, as I said, upfront. So that's uh, one way, and we're doing those types of coalitions and we learn from this. And now in this specific example, what worked best is of course to share cost afterwards, depending on the volume you draw. Uh, because we should not enter into a sort of competition, you know, I paid more, I invested more. It's depending on what you need from that type of, of, of uh, coalition and, and the landscape approach. So it's depending on the volumes you draw from this, uh, this crop or this produce. So it, it has worked quite well. And there are lots of other similar initiatives that, uh, that we have throughout the world. And, uh, uh, and that's how we, we evolve our approach. And, uh, you know, we, we, we move to, to, to embedding all those practices inside, inside what we do. Over to you, Toby. Hi, thanks, Magdi. Um, Barry, yeah, interesting point you made about, about carbon. I just wanted to come back on that. Olivier referenced ecosystem services. Uh, do, what are your views on, on the kind of carbon accounting work that needs to be done in the supply chain to help try and track and drive progress? On the one hand, you've got your internal targets. On the other hand, there is this um, confusion, but a fascination around the carbon markets for, for, for agriculture, particularly smallholder agriculture, and the potential for ecosystem services. What are your thoughts on how this is developing and how it might support the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, no, I think it's a super interesting topic. So, you know, just to dimensionalize, you know, we've got um, 30 uh, million tons of carbon in our in our supply chain, then, you know, 
more than half of that is connected to to agriculture. And uh, so, you know, the the way we track progress internally is through, you know, reducing that carbon footprint. It, there's a very clear metric. And frankly, anybody who set a net zero target um, knows they're going to have to work both on, on reductions in their supply chain and on offsetting. And so, you know, effectively, um, you know, whatever price you think carbon credits will be down the line, that is your internal price on carbon. You know, anything I can't reduce, I'm going to need to offset. So to to bring that to life, you know, if you think about regenerative agriculture, um, then effectively we're giving all of our buyers a premium um, to to invest in their supply chains to drive regenerative agriculture. Um, Twenty dollars a ton, thirty dollars a ton, whatever number you choose to use. So um, it's it's more efficient for us to drive changes in agricultural practices than it is to to buy buy offsets. And uh, so so you know I think the, a price on carbon and carbon accounting is absolutely crucial. And uh, you know we're putting the efforts within our organisation to make sure we've got the same rigor on carbon accounting as we have on on normal financial accounting. It's it it is the currency. When you say to me, you know, if you ask me when when will I know I've stopped deforestation? Well, when I when I my the carbon account is zero connected with land use change, uh, you know that's that's the it's, it's absolutely a currency. Um, but I, I don't think this is you know well adopted yet, and um, it, it's very straightforward. If you set a net zero target, then you've got to have mapped your uh, your your scope three emissions, and you've got to have understood what's driving that in, in agriculture. And they, you know, if you link that to regenerative agriculture. Uh, our view, you know, it, crucial, but regenerative agriculture is not scaling. Uh, it's uh, about 10 to 15 percent adoption around the world, and it's scaling at 0.6 percent a year. And frankly, we don't have 100 years for regenerative agriculture to roll out. So there's something in the way, and that something is almost certainly incentives. Sometimes it's counter perverse government incentives. Um, but it's certainly a, a lack of supply chain incentives. So, you know, th- these practices are not going to happen without uh, customers uh, like us investing in these value chains and putting incentives in so farmers uh, change practices because they're getting rewarded. And, and frankly, they're getting rewarded for sequestering carbon. So, um, you know, that we have, we have to pay for this and farmers need to be paid uh, for sequestering carbon in their in their uh, on their farms, and so um, you, you know, but I don't think enough companies have recognised that. We're all, you know, people are thinking this is just going to happen by magic. It's not. We're going to have to invest. What needs to happen beyond Mars to enable that environment? In your opinion, I know mean, that's a big question. Well, I, you know, back to Chris's point, there's lots of um, coalitions of action uh, forming uh, and that have been around and, and they're places where the, you know, the leading companies are, are getting together and working out how to do these things, whether it's through the Consumer Goods Forum or uh, um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the individual commodities like the World Cocoa Foundation or others, um, or, you know, we've just um, have our CEO leading a new um task force on regenerative agriculture we're getting companies to work together and and then you get a quorum of of uh, usually the biggest companies together with some of the supply chain companies recognizing what needs to be done the the challenge obviously is to get beyond 2030 companies working on this 
in in earnest on agriculture to thousands of companies and 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 frankly that hasn't happened yet so you know what point chris was making around you know what's different about the forest policy coalition is this idea of clean supplier not just clean supply chain we've all been trying to make our own supply chains clean but uh, what this does is it challenges our tier one suppliers to not just sell me clean whatever palm oil soy but all their customers and unless they're prepared to do that we will stop buying from them so we have to use our market uh, uh uh you know the, the the value we're bringing to to our, our suppliers to to drive change uh, through the through throughout all of these different commodity uh value chains thanks chris uh, yeah. question go yeah now i add one thing to that i think one thing that helps will that help to accelerate that is it's this common set of kpis so within the coalition on the supply chain side We've worked hard for each of the commodity roadmaps to have a roadmap specific to that commodity, whether it's soy, palm, paper, pulp, et cetera, have a common set of aligned KPIs that the companies are all measuring and then reporting on publicly. That's what was in our first report. So that we then can start to have, you know, again, you can start to build scale if we're all asking suppliers for the same information and we're, we're, we start to have a bigger database and the other thing that we've been trying to do is to influence things, you know, the other uh, standards and frameworks to adopt these KPIs. That's why we invited so much stakeholder input into them so that other companies beyond the coalition are starting, you know, hopefully they're adopted broadly and other companies will be required to report against them over time. Whether they're in the coalition or not, it doesn't matter. But um, it, those are just some of the ways that will help to be able to scale beyond our, our coalition. And will the positive coalition be taking a more overt stance on the right kind of carbon rules to encourage the right behaviours in the supply chain? We we held a webinar on this last week, which um, Nestle helped convene and support. And in, in fact, you know, it was I think it's their idea because they're very concerned. Your, your colleagues may be very concerned about, I'm sure yourself, about getting the rules and incentives and frameworks right post COP so that we can have the right activities in the supply chain. Because as Barry has said, as we've all said, incentives are key. I just wonder what the, I know you can't speak for all 20 companies, Chris, but just wonder if you could tell us a bit about the conversations you're starting to have about how we make sure the rules work for the farmers as well as for, for the markets. Right. So I think it's, it is about what, that's what we're working on right now on the landscape piece is, you know, what are the, what somebody had a question, you know, what will the specific KPIs be around climate and nature? Obviously, many of the companies in the coalition have net zero targets now are part of the race to zero, which is terrific. And then having, but I think one of the, the things that we've talked about is, do we have good systems in place today to measure? It's one thing to have the accounting rules all aligned. And then what are the tools to consistently measure the carbon reduction of a landscape? You know, we reforest and the carbon that's captured from there, it's, it's early days. And frankly, they're, they're fairly crude. And I think that, that that's something that we're working on collectively within our coalition and more broadly within CGF is uh, trying to have ways to, to be able to measure consistently and have those be validated externally. Um, and 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 we've been having conversations, you know, with SBTI and WWF, like various stakeholders, um, to talk about, you know, how do we how do we do that? Well, thank you, um, Olivia. I keep coming to you last. I know there's less to say once everyone else has been, but let's bring this back to the Indonesia example. 
do you see a time in, in the next few years? And if so, perhaps when in your crystal ball, where, where some of your farmers in your supply chain, let's say palm oil in Indonesia, are being incentivized around carbon credits and you know very specific greenhouse gas incentives for for their land or is that you know perhaps a lot further away than some of us might think it's uh, it's so so far away let's put it like that the problem that we'll have is that so that can work on larger plantations yes on on smallholders i think it might work on uh, on a slither of the uh, of the smallholder community but that's that's half a problem. I think the, the good news in a way is that uh, it, it's a bit like, uh, like certification, I would say. Is it for everybody? It's not for everybody. But what it does, on the other hand, if you have enough of that moving, is that you're creating tools and you're trialing tools. And these tools, then you can use on other, on none, let's say on the ones who are not fully supported or not very, uh, who, are very who are not incentivized directly. You, you have to create those tools. You cannot create tools just out of thin air. You have to have to be able to use them, see how they work, and then you can use that on others. That's what I usually say about, so for palm, it's the, the roundtable and sustainable palm oil certification. Is it for everybody? No, but it's a bit like the race to space, if you want. If you didn't have that, you would not have developed some sub-technologies. And we need to have that kind of, uh, of process so that we develop some ways of doing it. And practically, what does that mean? It means if there had not been the, the roundtable for sustainable palm oil, we would not have had more support to the high conservation uh, values network. We would not have seen the development of the high carbon stock approach. And so, and we would maybe not have had so much support also for the accountability framework initiative. So I think it's quite necessary to have one section of the supply chain moving faster than the rest, as long as it, create tool, it creates tools that can be of use to the rest of the supply chain and even possibly to other commodities so that when you approach one landscape, you, you're not just looking at the palm, the palm producers in that landscape, but you have, you can have some impact on the others. So sorry to go back to carbon uh, because I, I strayed a bit from that. Yeah, it will not come, it will not come easily. A couple of reasons. One, yes, how do, how do we touch so many smallholders? That's going to be very difficult. Measure their impact, measure their, their carbon savings, their carbon sequestration. But then we also should not forget that there must be a legal framework. How does the state of Indonesia manage the carbon trading? It's still something which has, there, there are regulations now, but how they're going to be implemented and how they can trickle down, including to small farmers, is, is a different mechanism. That's something that where the state has to play its role as well. It cannot be purely on the private sector to say, I will, intend, I will incentivize and find ways to do that. There must be some government uh, involvement as well. Yes, that seems absolutely key. I've heard people voice concerns that we could do all this great work in the supply chain, the government can come and take all the carbon credits and claim them for something else or move them elsewhere. You know, it's entirely possible. Um, so mo moving on from that, there's a great question here from Nigel Sizer. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, many of you, I think, will know Nigel. And he's put it better than I could have done. So I'm going to read it out. Do the panellists welcome the latest developments from the European Commission ratcheting up efforts to, to eliminate deforestation embedded in commodities? Do you support other major markets doing the same? And if so, what are you doing to help accelerate this? Great question, Nigel. We just heard from Hugo Shalley in the earlier session about the EU's plans. I know this is a difficult one. Uh, Magdi, let me turn to you first. Uh, what are your views on this? No, I think that 100%. I mean, not only we, we, we applaud that, we welcome this, we also supported that. 
you know, it's about time, you know, that uh, we have uh, serious results around uh, deforestation. And, uh, you know, when we started this journey more than 10 years ago, we realized that we will not have enough boots on the ground to be able to, to, to control all this or to have full transparency on what's going on. And that's why a few years back, we have put in place with Airbus the Starlink system, which is satellite imaging for us to be able to understand where we need to focus and where we need to zoom in then. So which then allows us with the equivalent number of boots on the ground to have bigger impact. So uh, no deforestation is like the basics. It's like basic education in a sense. We need this absolutely, but we need to go to forest positive, not only no, no deforestation, forest positive, which is of course at the core of this uh, also regenerative agriculture and carbon, carbon sinking. I just want to make a comment on why frameworks are important. Because, uh, you know, when we talk about offsetting, I would be very careful there about carbon offsetting and trading of carbon. Because, uh, you know, uh, there are some calculations that show that if everybody wants to offset, uh, rather than strongly reduce, remove and inset within your value chain, then you will not have enough land where you can plant all those trees and those forests. So what I'm trying to say, you, you, we need a strong framework for that. And if you look at the science-based target initiative as a company, if it's a company journey, it does not allow actually for offsettings. Offsettings are allowed when you talk about carbon neutrality of brands. And that's an important point because firstly, you need to reduce, remove and inset within your value chain. And the landscape approach for me is an enabler to that because then it's part of, of, of your own value chain. And again, uh, you know, it's not only about uh, trading those credits, because what's more important is the quality of how you do things. And that's why it, it, it requires some time and some efforts to be able to, you know, embed those practices in whatever we do. So in a nutshell, of course, yes, for no deforestation, we were one of the driving force behind, uh, you know, very much supporting the European Commission on that and going beyond with the forest positive approach, because it's at the core of uh, regeneration in our view. Thank you. Um, Olivier, how do you think these proposals are going to go down in Indonesia? Um, what European and other countries' efforts on stopping deforestation have not always been politically popular in Indonesia, shall we say. Uh, what do you, what's the mood music that you're hearing? It's still quite fresh, but I, I think it, it's not exactly seen as, as extremely positive. Um, because, well, first, we do not have yet the details on how it's going to be implemented. Uh, second, the, the main risk is it goes back to smolder. Sorry, I'm, I'm obsessed. Um, it's uh, because the, the regulation or the draft regulation we've seen poses a problem in terms of, of smolders. Um, how do you include smolders? Uh, what I mean by that, sorry, maybe I should put it the other way around. An easy way to comply with that regulation would be to say we exclude smolders because you exclude a lot of risk. You also make your supply chain a lot easier to manage. So I, I, let's put it more in that, that point of view. And I think that's what's missing and what, that's the glaring hole, I would, for me anyway, in this uh, regulation. How do you make it so that it's, it does not exclude smolders? Because Europe could very, very well say, you know what, we don't want smolders anymore. So considering how much we're consuming, we could actually maybe source it only from plantations, which are easier to track and, and are actors easier to, to manage. So I, I would think that's where the, the hurting part will come. It's... Uh, how do you, there's two levels, one on smallholders, which I think is, is the key, 
The second one is also how do you recognize then uh, some legality? How do you, at what level are you going to put the, the, the local, let's say, uh, certification system scheme? What level of entry it will still give to Europe? What, what level of entry it will give to the compliance for the due diligence? I think that there's still a lot of work to be done on the implementation. And each member state on top of that will have its own way of verifying. And that's going to be really interesting how, how you can verify the information, the mass of information that's going to find its way to Europe. Um, technically, I'm sure it's possible, but it will be interesting to see how it's managed by each member state. Because we're not talking about the EU doing all the control. It's not guys with uh, blue flags and, and the little stars doing it. It's going to be each member state. So you're creating even more complexity in that system. And which state has the most capacity to do that and how they're going to do, the, to do it. I think it, it's at the moment, there's a bit too much fog. It's a bit of a shame because the fundamental idea behind that due diligence is actually not wrong. It's also telling the importers, you bear responsibility as much. And I think what's missing is that sense of it's you and us working on it together. It's a bit more of an us saying we do not want something. And I think that the message is not getting across very nicely. Now, Toby, if you allow me, it's an important point. I agree 100% with what Olivier said on smallholders. But then we need to have some courage. You know, as I said, 10 years ago, we made that commitment, no deforestation by 2020. We did not achieve it. We are at 94%. And the reason is smallholders. But we made it very clear. We are not going to delete all smallholders from our value chain. And hence, it will take us a couple of years more to achieve what we thought we could achieve a bit earlier. So it requires a bit of courage and transparency. But I think we need to make sure that, of course, smallholders are part of the journey. But that is not an excuse by itself to kind of shy away from the no deforestation roadmap. That's what I wanted to say. And of course, the complexities around the member states, that is I would say beyond only the deforestation problem, it, it goes beyond. But I, I fully agree with the smallholders. That's what made us a couple of years late. And we will achieve it, but later, because of smallholders. But we are proud of that. There is nothing wrong about it. Uh, I'll, I'll piggyback on that, if you allow me, uh, Magdi. Then I think the point, and sometimes when, when, I, when I started working in this field, I was a bit, uh, I was a bit of a... Of a idealist, because I thought for smallholders, we should never go to 100% compliance or not demand 100% compliance. There's always the new guy coming in and you have to bring him in and not kick him out. I realize, of course, it's not a very popular view, but I, I appreciate what you just said. You're absolutely right. Yes, we will need to take the time, but we have to get there with the smallholders and for the smallholders to a point. At least the ones who want to participate. Chris. Yeah, I guess I would, the other thing I would add, and, you know, Barry and I work in Cocoa, and we've actually talked together with EU Commission about that regulation in support of it. But I think it, it's the other important piece is understanding sort of what's underneath the smallholders and, you know, why is the deforestation happening? It's It ties back to poverty and the socioeconomic development of some of these countries where, um, where these commodities are grown. And so one of the things that we're also advocating for is not just regulation, but there needs to be investment in these countries to help, you know, the, the co something like cocoa, or in some cases, some of these commodities, that's the only game in town for these families to, to try to earn a living. So there needs to be investment, not just regulation from consuming countries coming down onto producing ones, 
but um, helping to develop the, those economies so that you could, you know, have an adequate number of smallholder farmers realistically to be able to, you know, earn a living, a decent uh, living out of uh, out of the commodity and and have other jobs in the in in the economy to be able to earn a, a living and not necessarily have everybody trying to, um, you know, just rely on one or two commodities. Uh, yeah, it's just never going to work. So I, so I think not, I mean, we talk about, you know, coalitions working together. It, it, I, I, some of these challenges, I mean, it's going to be, it's not just suppliers working together or industry working together in pre-competitive ways, but, but governments too um, are going to have to reach across, which um, may sound a little bit like nirvana, but um, that's the kind of thing we're advocating for. Yeah, we seem to be headed in a direction of advocating for sustainable rural economic development with a diversification and inclusion not just of you know one area but but multiples within landscapes which could be scaled barry you've been listening patiently to all this we only have a couple of minutes left so if i could ask you to be be concise yeah you know we're, we absolutely welcome uh, uh, sensible and strong legislation on this topic i think it's crucial to level the playing field um you know if we're going to to you know, succeed with a transition from completely unsustainable supply chains to completely sustainable ones, which will no doubt take 10, 10 to 20 years, then we need all of the levers uh, that uh, we can bring to this to drive change and to, and to frankly encourage the laggards to step up or they'll lose access to markets. But I, I fully agree on two of the other points. There has to be carrots and sticks here. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the consuming countries have to uh, help the, uh, the origin producing countries on this transition with funding and, and with other support. Uh, and for sure, smallholders are crucial. You know, cocoa is all smallholders. Um, and, uh, you know, that transition means that, uh, you, you know, working farm by farm all the way through that. And, uh, you know, we've been mapping, as have Nestle and Mondelez, we've almost completely mapped all of our smallholder farmers now. You know, we know where they are. We know the size of their land. We know what practices are going on there. That is no longer the issue. It's frankly, the other 50% of the sector that is unmanaged and uncontrolled, where legislation will be necessary to, to help. So the EU getting on with it, great. The US needs to get on with it. Or frankly, they're going to get the, uh, the unsustainable cocoa coming their way uh, once Europe's closed the door. So it has, needs to happen all around the world. Thank you. Um, great note to close on. We're out of time. We could carry on all day. And in fact, we can tomorrow and in the next session. So thank you all for your time and engagement. Much appreciate Magdi, uh, Olivier, Chris and Barry, your time today and the insights of uh, the audience. We'll capture those and make sure they're available. But we have to finish up now. But thank you all so much for your time and insights in this session. Thank you.